0: I like dogs better. That's why I have so many of them. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we get mad about Christmas merch hitting store shelves early, one issue at a time. (laughs) My name is Mike Thompson, and I'm joined by my co-host, the harrowing hostess herself, jessica frazier
1: well mike this is an audio medium but i would like to say that i'm wearing a very seasonally appropriate halloween time sweatshirt
0: yeah i I like it
1: i will confess uh... to you i will be wearing this out of season so i'm i'm also (laughs) the problem
0: (laughs) hi it's me i'm the problem it's me
1: it's true i'm always a a a little spoopy
0: yeah i mean Sarah and I today were at Walmart and we found a hot dog costume for Noodle. And so now next week he's going to be at an office Halloween pet costume contest.
1: It's a Halloween
0: Or Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) But like Sarah was putting together a kind of like a skin for our wagon for him. And so it's going to be a hot dog cart
1: yes it's very good (laughs) every once in a while I just gotta get him and roll him around like he's on one of those little conveyors
0: oh we do that all. I mean you were with us at uh, the the antique fair where we had him in the wagon and like (laughs) everybody was stopping to talk to us about him and like play with him and oh my god it was just it was really funny and someone else was like does this happen all the time with you guys and I'm like oh yeah like literally
1: I mean look at him of course it does (laughs)
0: like like he's a, a miniature dachshund puppy like Everybody is all over this dog.
1: And his eyes look like saucers in his little face. He's got the biggest (laughs) eyes. and He just stares into your soul.
0: It's very good. It's very cute. Well, we could go on about dogs all night, but we are here to talk (laughs) about comics.
1: Oh, (laughs) that's right. That's what we do here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. If you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you are willing to rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that helps with discoverability. But if you're just enjoying the show and you don't want to do that, keep on rocking. That's fine with us. We're glad to have you here. It is. Welcome. This week, we are wrapping up spooky season because this is going to be dropping in, I think, Mid November and spooky season ends when we say it does. And it never ends. It never ends. And we are talking about Route 666, the horror series from Cross Gen Comics. But before we talk about that, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately?
1: Well, my friend Noelle gave me the first four issues of the series Usagi Jane and the Skull Bunnies by Hmm. Ben Cedar and it was published that, by Black Sheep Comics.
0: Ben Cito sounds familiar, but I've never heard of the series.
1: Yeah, it was originally published in 2007. Okay. They look and feel like they are self-printed and in fact I'll hold it up right now for you. Like Oh,
0: Scott, that looks familiar. Like I feel like yeah. I have seen that before, at least that that imagery.
1: Yeah, so it's good Bunnies. <laughs> So it's very cute, but it, it looks like it's self-printed. It's a black and white comic, and most of them are first print, but the first issue is a second printing, and they're all signed by the author, which is super cool. So thank you, oh, Noelle. Oh, wow.
0: That's really cool. Yeah.
1: It was a really sweet thing. So it's about a woman who's walking in the woods one day, and she finds a bunny skull. And so she forms, like, just a little buddy body out of Earth, and she puts a little bunny skull on the body, and then it comes to life. Hmm. And then she keeps finding more and more bunny skulls that she helps to reanimate, but they all run away from her. Okay. And all she wants to do is hang out with them. So she gets an idea one night, and she puts on a onesie that makes her look like a large skull bunny. (laughs) And then she's accepted into the group. Oh, that's cool. And, yeah, in the other issues, she and the skull bunnies fight large monsters at one point there's this big one with a sprout out of its head and they like end up watering it and it turns into sprouts and that's how they save everyone and mm. at one point they have a mech skull bunny and they're fighting this big yes. thing with a skull bunny <laughs> it's love really it. cute and they seriously kick ass so i would recommend it for sure
0: this sounds like something that sarah would be all over oh, so I'll have to she keep would love it for it
1: Sarah would love this absolutely and I can you guys can definitely borrow this absolutely all right well what about you
0: so Spider-Man 2 launched today on PlayStation 5 and I picked it up this morning when Sarah and I went to Walmart uh, for her work but then I was like I should probably buy this because I want it
1: while I'm Uh, here (laughs) while I'm here
0: exactly (laughs) I I may have played some of it when I should have been working on the script for tonight's episode but I regret nothing
1: (laughs) I don't know anything about that Mm-mm. If folks behind the scenes. I'm the biggest procrastinator in the world. And it's something I'm fighting so hard against right
0: now. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Poor Mike is just hitting the brunt of it a lot of the time though.
0: Yeah, it's fine. But yeah, like the recent Spider-Man games for PlayStation have been just a huge amount of fun. Like the first one was the Spider-Man game that I've been waiting for for years. It was this really beautiful open world game starring Spidey. And it wasn't telling like the same story that we've been fed over and over again. It was like an original story where it kind of shifted things enough that it felt different. It introduced Miles. It featured villains that weren't Venom or the Green Goblin. And it was just it was very clear that the people who made it really loved the character. And then they did a sort of a sequel, sort of like just it was one of those games where I feel like it was going to be an expansion like DLC. And then it wound up being big enough that they were like, we can release it as its own title, but they sold it for a little less. And that was the Miles Morales game where you play as Miles. And that one did this really great job of like boiling down everything great from the first game and then distilling it into a title that I felt was even better because they cut out a lot of the extraneous stuff. Like the first one had, they had this whole thing where it's like inmates break out from the prison, then you have to clear out like the areas that they've taken over neighborhoods. And I'm like, okay, yeah. this gets like very grindy after a while. And then also you're like answering police calls as Peter Parker, like where you're stopping criminals during police chases and stuff. And, yeah, you know, especially after, you know, the, the summer of 2020, that, that got some pretty understandable pushback. Absolutely. And so the way that they countered that miles Morales was, it was like, oh, so he's going for like, the neighborhood Spider-Man vibe. And so what happens is Mm -hmm. they create an app that citizens can feed things into. So it's like, oh, hey, the bodega across the street from me is getting robbed right now.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And so they've like brought that into to the new one as well. It's that's cool. It's really good. And so now we have a new game with both Spider-Man working together in New York. I played through the opening. It's about an hour, hour and a half. It made me so fucking happy. Like oh, It. It felt like stepping into a really comfortable, familiar set of clothes and realizing that it's like better than you remember it. Like, you know, it's just like you immediately are just like feeling really good. You play as both Peter and Miles. They both handle differently, but there's also a Venn diagram between the two characters. So it feels pretty natural when you switch from one to the other on the fly. They like almost immediately, like during this huge battle with Sandman that they use as the intro, they're like, oh, we've got this new tech. And they do this thing where it's like, we got to use the new tech. And so they have like gliders built into their suits now. And so you can just like, you can web sling, but you can also like glide. That's so
1: cool.
0: And it's really oh, cool. Oh, that's cool.
1: So you don't have to rely solely on the web, yeah. which is really neat. That's, that's good.
0: Yeah. And like the fast travel system is so seamless. It's just bonkers. Like basically, you know, on the previous gen, you would sit there and be like, okay, so I'm going to fast travel. And you get this cute little animatic where it's like Spider-Man sitting in his costume on the subway. And it's all, it's always like really cute, but like, but this time you're like, I'm going to travel from this point of the map to this point and you can travel while you're flying and suddenly you'll be on the other point of the city, still flying like mid trick and all that. It's really slick.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah. That's cool. So like I have some job application stuff that I have to do over this weekend. Like it's, you know, it's a priority, but like I am totally, I am saving this for a reward for myself afterwards and I cannot wait.
1: I think that's a really good idea to give yourself, like, a little treat, you know?
0: So, like, I was a video games journalist in college, and I remember there was, like, a really big games launch, like, right around the time that I was doing my exit exams, and I would not open it because I got sent a free copy, like, a week and a half before it came out because they were like, here's a review copy. And so I was like, I cannot touch this, otherwise I will fail my exit exams. (laughs) Uh, Right. And so... I passed my exit exams and I remember I went out and I got some takeout and then I walked home and then I basically did not leave my room for the weekend. It was great. I just played this video game. So it was good.
1: That's great.
0: Are you ready to talk about Route 666?
1: Yeah, let's
0: roll. All right. So this comic... It ran longer than the issues we are going to focus on. We are going to primarily focus on the first volume, which was collected in a trade paperback. It's the only one of the series that came out. And this volume contains the first six issues of that series. I wound up picking it up about a year ago. I talked about it, I think, when we had Dan Chichester on. It's like one of the cool things I was reading. I found it at a used bookstore. It was only a couple of bucks. And then when I was out shopping with friend of the show, Jason Ayers, when he came to Sacramento there was a shop in Sacramento that we were at and they had like a full bookshelf of cross-gen trade paperbacks. And I saw Route 666 and I was like, oh yeah, we should, uh, we should talk about this because I've been picking up the issues in the dollar bins after I read the first trade. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty solid. And I was like, we should talk about this and it's spooky season. So why not? Yeah. So
1: friend of, friend of the pod, WWE, yeah. Jason Ayers, casual,
0: <laughs> casual Just like always, that. He's going to kidnap my dog. One of these days, I'm telling you, <laughs>
1: If if your dog shows up at WWE wearing a little tuxedo, I'm going to know why.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He just runs around the ring barking at like (laughs) Seth Rollins and and like Brand New Day, all those guys. That'd be great. No, it's funny because when I was working at 2K, we realized that we were in the same building because he came to the office once or twice for some event stuff. And we were like, oh, so we were in the same building. At the same time, and we just had, you know, we had no, we didn't know each other, but it was just like, that was kind of a funny ships in the night moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. Anyway, Route 666 (laughs) was published in 2002 by CrossGen Comics. And CrossGen is this like really fascinating story that I've wanted to, to do a little bit of an episode on for a while. They were founded in 1998 by this guy named Mark Alessi. It sounds like he had gotten rich after selling his company to an IT resource corporation. And then in 1999, CrossGen bought the fan convention Megacon and Megacon's founder became CrossGen's marketing and distribution director. And then in January 2000, CrossGen put out its first comic book. They put out a series called Cross Genesis, which offered a peek at what was called the CrossGen universe. And the idea for the CrossGen universe was that, you know, like... Like most comics publishers, they had a shared continuity and this was, and this universe was, or in this continuity was like, most of the comics took place in different realities with the story, with the stories set on like different earth-like worlds, but like sci-fi, horror, adventure, fantasy, like all of it was there. And then there was this common theme though, was that people with unusual powers were marked with a stylized sigil which was like it was like kind of this like colored yin yang symbol that happened to double as the company's logo and these oh, individuals were known as the sigil pairs so a couple of comic series were set in the same world they were kind of like spin-offs of each other but most of them were separate from one another but they still maintain this loose kind of like meta element and then CrossGen was also doing something pretty unique at the time most of the company's talent were salaried employees of the company and they worked out of the headquarters in Oldsmar, Florida. And that's as opposed to you know other publishers like Marvel or DC, where creators were primarily work for higher contractors. So they were attracting like a lot of top-tier talent. It was actually really interesting. But they were also taking advantage of digital distribution, which was like long before Marvel or DC really were, CrossGen bought the domain called comicsontheweb.com, and you could pay a pretty low subscription fee. I think it was like a dollar or two a month. Or you could buy a lifetime subscription that at one point was like only $75 and then you could read through their entire catalog digitally as long as you were willing to put up with a six month delay, which I mean, Mm -hmm. that's like pretty much the same model that Marvel Unlimited was using, I think, until the pandemic. And I think they shortened it to like three months. But but the thing is, is like Marvel, I don't think started that with Marvel Unlimited until like 2007. And comics on the web, from what I understand, like people were pretty happy with it, but like. You know, you were looking at it and it was like, you know, it's 2002 web browsing. So like the picture quality was like a little bit less high def than what we're used to now. And then there was some issue with like reading text. But I think if you clicked on the word balloons, it would enlarge it so you could read it. And yeah, but anyway, they were doing some really interesting stuff. And so they were getting pretty popular. And then in July of 2002, they launched Route 666, which was their first horror comic. It was written by Tony Bedard and penciled by Carl Moline. Route 666 takes place on, as I said, an Earth-like planet called Erebus, specifically in a country called the United States of Empyrean. Exactly when the story takes place isn't clear, but the vibe of the comic is very clearly aping the aesthetics, some societal attitudes and technology from, like, the 1950s. There's a lot of chrome. There's also some, like, retro-futurism designs and, like, you know, with, with some of the stuff that they have. And then it also gives off a really kind of Cold War vibe throughout the story because we learn the USC is in conflict with a group called the People's Republic of Rodina. And Rodina is, I think that's Russian for like motherland, but it's like, mm. it's very clearly a combination of Russia and China. Right. And early on, some of the villains in the story are revealed to have been citizens of the PRR when they were alive there's other small differences like the names of organizations one big example is the FBI is now the National Bureau of Investigation that's run by J. Edgar Purvis who (laughs) like I don't know how I feel about this but when we meet Purvis later on in the series after this volume like almost every appearance that he has he is cross-dressing because that was like a big you know urban legend about J. Edgar Hoover was that he would cross-dress got it it's played up it for laughs. It's one of those things where I'm like, it's <laughs> these days, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about it. It's not really othering them, but it's kind of like this this dude who is like very burly and chomping on a cigar, but he's also wearing kind of like, you know, clothes that you would see a middle-aged woman like housefrau wearing. Like, I'm like,
1: hmm.
0: kind of funny. Like, I don't know. It's it's a yeah. little ridiculous. It's kind of like uh, when you look at the old Monty Python drag sketch, like, and you're like, I don't know if I should laugh at that now. Yeah, Yeah. totally. But yeah, the comic itself follows Cassie Starkweather, who is a student at Welkin State University. We learn from the intro letter of the comic, which is kind of like, you know, setting up the, the general premise. And it's framed being from the WSU Office of Mental Health to Cassie's parents that Cassie is being periodically checked into because of her prior medical history. But she's doing well. Not only is she crushing it academically, but she and her roommate Helene are best friends and are on the nationally ranked gymnastics team. We get to see the two girls actually hanging out in their dorm room and their friendship seems pretty genuine. Like they are talking about dating boys. And I mean, it honestly reminded me a lot of the way that Sarah and her sister talk about boys or men that, you know, (laughs) that that Sarah's sister is dating. Uh, I thought it was really kind of sweet. But then the next day we cut to a gymnastics practice and Helene brings a guy from the team under the bleachers and it's implied that she's going to be like making out with him or something. But it turns out she's actually giving him dating advice about how to ask out Cassie in private while she's removing toenail paint because the gym coach got mad at her. and was like, you need to get that off your toes in the next five minutes or you're not going to be on the team for our our event next week. And Cassie sees that while she's on the balance beam, she gets distracted, doesn't stick her landing bumps into the janitor, which then causes him to knock over his mop and bucket the water from which spills onto the bleacher control device because it's one of those automatic bleacher systems that like extends out from the wall.
1: Yep.
0: Yeah. And then the bleachers end up crushing Helene pretty horrifically. Like she's not dead, but like you look at and you're like, girl, (laughs) like you're not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And so Helene gets loaded into an ambulance and then the paramedics suddenly pull into an alley and are talking about just watching the girl die right before the gym coach catches them and threatens them with legal action if they don't go to the hospital. And then the paramedics transform into like what I can only describe as lookalikes of Lon Chaney's Wolfman. And then they drag the coach into the ambulance too. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's like, you know, it's very obviously like something sinister is going on. We're just, we're giving you a taste of it right now. Yeah. And then that night at her parents' home, Cassie is woken up by Helene's deformed ghost, which it's like, it's a very striking image. Like.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: I mean, it's it's a great visual because, you know, she's a ghost. There's there's not blood. There's not gore. But like she's got her body parts are all warped at right angles. And it's like very uncomfortable to look at. And she's begging Cassie for help. And she says that they have the coach too. a portal opens. And we see these two kind of like they're like demonic shadows. They come through. They drag Helene back through the portal on the other side of which we see a ghostly highway with the sign for Route 666 on the road, but not before it's revealed that Cassie shouldn't be able to see any of them. She tells her parents what happened, and then we cut to the office of Dr. Melchior, who's kind of like the sinister-looking bald dude in charge of the Melchior sanatorium. We learn Cassie's been able to see ghosts since she was a kid, usually considering them as playmates, but it stopped being fun when she saw her grandfather's ghost at his funeral. She soon after attempted suicide, and then she hasn't seen the ghost since. And Cassie is, it seems, voluntarily checked into the facility. And although the orderly Gus who gives her a tour is a creep, she does meet the kind Dr. Waterman, who has largely turned the sanatorium into a place of healing and therapy. And then one night, a portal opens again into Cassie's room, and the shadow demons that we saw before appear again with the intent of capturing her. They chase her through the building. She manages to pass through one of them and gets glimpses of his life as a serial killer right before another portal opens. And then her dead grandfather's ghost comes out and he appears that Cassie is going to be the end of the shadow demons and their kind. So that is when things really kick off. We learn that there is a war. I don't know. It's kind of a war between afterlives. Like, I, that's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. The demons serve someone called the adversary and mostly appears a mix of B movie monsters or monsters from myths and legends. We see a lot of wolfmen throughout the series. There's also a healthy number of vampires and devils and zombies and mummies, to name a few. But, you know, yeah, it's a vibe.
1: (laughs) It is a vibe. I love it.
0: Yeah. So a lot of these creatures, it's revealed, work in, like, the medical industry. Like, they're paramedics, they're nurses, they're doctors. And they are harvesting souls for their boss. Why, we don't know right now. Cassie's grandfather gives her a vague... There's a war going on that most people can't see, but you can speech and he awakens her powers before he disappears and she passes out. Dr. Waterman finds her and then when she wakes up, he tells his boss Melchior about what she told him about the events of that night. Melchior basically gaslights her into thinking that she's crazy and then that night Gus the creep lets him into her room. And it's actually like implied that he's going to sexually assault her. But then it's revealed that he's actually one of those wolf men that we saw in Mm -hmm. the first issue. And she not only manages to escape, but she actually ends up killing Gus. And it's not like it's not like by an accident. Like she gets his stun baton. She takes him out. She ends up using her gymnastic skills to basically avoid him when he dives at her. And he goes over the edge of like the staircase and it's implied dies from the fall. So, you know, she has some agency, which I kind of liked.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: And then Cassie is about to leave through the front gate and then she realizes that like she needs to help Waterman and so she goes back for him and she finds him in Melchior's office where Melchior is saying that he is terminating the good doctor because Waterman went behind his back and was getting Cassie transferred to a state hospital. And then he turns into a vampire and rips out Waterman's throat just as Cassie bursts in. Yeah. So... Melchior manages to get the upper hand and basically he like psychologically tortures Cassie for a few minutes like you know like he has Waterman's body on top of her while he's bleeding out and it's it's like a, a real uncomfortable image to be honest yeah and then the shadow spirits show up again and they take Waterman's ghost back to Route 666 Cassie then manages to kill Melchior by stabbing him through the eye with his own pen which I kind of loved and yep. then she hops a bus out of town. And as Melchior had reported her as a murderer right before she took him out, Cassie is now a wanted woman who's being blamed for an ever-growing body count. She gets off at a diner where the local sheriff, Cisco spots her and gives chase. Cassie steals his squad car. Cisco wants to go after her in his son's truck, but his son Miguel is like, I'm the only one who can really drive it because it's kind of temperamental. And during the pursuit, Cisco shoots out Cassie's hubcap which then causes both cars to crash and Miguel dies. Like it's, you know, it's brutally, he goes right through the front windshield, Mm -hmm. but then Miguel's ghost helps convince his dad that Cassie's on the level while they fend off more Wolfman paramedics and the ever recurring shadow spirits. Cassie winds up saving Cisco and Miguel's spirit. And then Miguel fades away. It's implied that he like is moving on to, I don't know, the good afterlife, heaven, whatever you want to call it. And Cisco lets Cassie go. At this point, we are at issue five, which opens with Cassie riding the rails. She's in a boxcar with some other folks who realize her identity when they see a newspaper with her photo on the front page. One of the drifters named Berkeley takes her side and convinces the crowd to just let her jump off the next time the train slows down. When she does, Berkeley also gets off and travels with Cassie for a bit. Berkeley reveals that he can see the true nature of people also, and he knows the stories about Cassie being a serial killer aren't true. I kind of liked the analogy that he was doing about different types of pies and saying that like she's not mincemeat, which I thought was kind of cool. And then she tells him what's going on. Berkeley then helps Cassie take down some monsters in the next town they're in before the reader learns that the guy who is hanging out with Cassie is actually a serial killer known as the Rail Splitter. It... And it's revealed at the very end of the issue that the reason that the other people in the boxcar didn't, you know, didn't turn her in is because he uh he murdered them all. <laughs> yeah. He's actually a really interesting character because, yeah, he's a serial killer, but he is always on Cassie's side whenever we see him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: And that brings us to the final part of this volume. We meet Agent Melchior. From the NBI investigating Cassie's case, including a scene of him examining his father's corpse, Dr. Melchior, the vampire.
1: Seems like a little bit of a conflict of interest, if you ask me. But okay, yeah. It,
0: it does, and it's one of those things where when I was reading it, I was like, wait, like, so is he like a demon or something? Like, did he know that his Same. dad was a vampire? And it's Same. revealed much later on that sometimes these demons will come in and they will assume the identities of people that they kill.
1: Oh, okay, understood. That makes more sense.
0: Yeah. The other thing is that these monsters are not actually the monsters of legend of like B-movie creatures, whatever. They take these different forms and abilities. It's never explicitly stated, but they're like presumably demons.
1: Mm.
0: And the adversary is very much an analog for Satan. We never see what's on the other side of this war. Well, we see Cassie's grandfather, but like. Yeah. Even he like it seems is like not fully on the level because he seems pretty demonic, but like in an angelic demon kind of way, like, you know, he's got wings, but then like his his mouth and face will transform and it's like very. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's weird. It, yeah, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you. He was definitely complex.
0: Yeah. And we never got resolution on that. We'll talk about that later. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we love it. But that often is what happens with the stuff we talk about. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, Melchior and his NBI squad manage to track down Cassie and Berkeley, but Berkeley gets the drop on the agent and they escape with Melchior as a hostage. The group travels to a local hospital, which has a number of monsters on staff. And Berkeley basically starts gunning them down. And he like brings Cassie in. He's like, I want you to basically make sure that I don't hit the wrong people. So you gotta point out who I gotta shoot. And originally Cassie's like, you can't shoot the agent. He's not a demon but like she'll point out the other ones. And then Cassie meets the ghost of a young mother in the hospital chapel and is told a a pretty horrific story about how they sacrificed her baby after she died. And then Berkeley comes in and talks to Cassie. He reveals that he is the rail splitter, but he also says that they're the perfect team of holy soldiers because she can spot the monsters and then he can kill them all. And he also, he has a whole thing about like, well, like basically he's like, I knew that like I had this thing but I joined the Marines because I figured that was like a good outlet for me. So like I was right. I was in the Marines and what is implied to be World War Two. So it's it's weird. Like, yeah, he's a serial killer, but also he's like got a sense of morality, sort of. And I don't know. I yeah. like it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, it works in fiction because it's fiction.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. fine.
0: There I'm it like, I, I enjoy this. I enjoy this trope. I'm like. It's, it's not great, but I still enjoy it. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And then Cassie is like, yeah, that that's totally the case. And then she's like, uh, I got a glimpse of the NBI agent that like that you went after earlier and they actually are monsters. So you need to go after them. And then she slips out of the back while Berkeley is gunned down while he goes after Melchior. And, you know, Melchior was not a monster. She was basically using him because she was just like, I can't be I can't hang out with this dude. <laughs> And as Cassie flees, Melchior notes that Berkeley wasn't the man behind Cassie's murder spree like he thought he was. Berkeley was just another of her victims. And that's where the volume ends. It's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> wild. Yeah. So we'll talk about that specific volume in a little bit. I'm going to focus on kind of like real quick what happened with the rest of the series. So. Yeah. Something that isn't quite addressed, but we should note, is that Cassie has tremendously bad luck that largely affects those around her often in lethal ways. Like, I talked about the thing that happened with her friend Helene. We don't usually see things work out quite as Rube Goldbergian. Is that a word? I don't know. (laughs) It is now. It is now. (laughs) But it's impossible not to notice the narrative device that was being used because it had actually recently gotten really big in pop culture thanks to the movie final destination that had come out two years prior to this book it had been a big hit they had a sequel in production at the time that started coming out it's actually really interesting this comic series it's like yeah it's like horror but it's like it's hard to describe exactly what kind of horror it is because it feels like a mashup of like 1950s silly monster movies kind of Mm -hmm. And then Final Destination, and then also They Live, that movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper, who, like, he's got the glasses that let him see the aliens and stuff. Right,
1: right, right, right.
0: So, yeah, like, it's it's really interesting. And then from here, the comic kind of continues this episodic format, with Cassie kind of careening around the countryside as she tries to figure out exactly what's going on. Although she's the target of this vast conspiracy that is going all the way up to, like, the upper echelons of power in the country. You know, it's framing her as a mass murderer. Cassie does gain some allies along her adventures, namely Agent Melchior winds up, like, you know, eventually coming to her side, and Cisco, There's, like, later on also a circus that's actually aware of the monsters, and they use their operation to go from town to town, and they are guided by these twins with microcephaly. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's what, in the olden days, you know, the, the battled days, they would refer to them as pinheads. So hmm, they, they are presented as being developmentally di- disabled, but they also have
1: hmm.
0: pretty substantial psychic abilities and they can sit there and basically kind of like act as a radar unit and figure out who the monsters are and then inform the fortune teller who acts as sort of like the general for this army. And then hmm. she directs the circus after them. I thought it was actually kind of clever, but yeah,
1: that's interesting. Totally.
0: Yeah. And then a few issues later, Cassie gains the ability to make monsters visible to others and so she's able to show melchior and cisco the truth when they're trying to have cassie taken into custody
1: oh see that's cool like i'm glad that they did that because otherwise she's just like yelling at nothing and questioning her reality
0: yeah and then as time goes on whenever she's using her power she starts manifesting like a halo above her head which was kind of nice
1: oh okay that's good give us a little indication
0: Yeah. Later on, it's revealed that like she can actually save in quotes, those dark spirits who are harvesting recently deceased souls. It's a little vague, but like the first one that she passed through and saw was a serial killer. She wound up like going into his memories and then showing him the horror of what he did. And then like, it's implied, like I said, it's a little vague, but it's implied that like those people who are evil that, that become these monsters have portions of their soul missing and she's able to kind of fill in the gaps and thus making them off limits as agents of the adversary. And so in this one instance, he now fully regrets what he did and he moves on. It's an interesting thing. I don't know how much I like it, but you know,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah.
0: Uh, A few issues after that, again, Cassie develops a kind of spider sense that lets her detect monsters when they're nearby. Which, you know, like it makes sense. Yeah. And like I said, you know, the adversary and his agents, like we learned that they're really demons and that the adversary himself is, you know, basically an analogy for Satan. The main antagonist for a while manifests as this woman named Beleth. She is referred to as the monster queen. She's basically running the adversary's agenda in the, the real world. And then later on, there's also Tanner, who is he's interesting. He's like another demon who was like retired, but then he is you know, basically commanded by the adversary to capture Cassie along like, you know, and then he's like kind of like a wrangler for the shadow creatures, one of whom after the serial killer was sent on, a new one was created. And it's very clearly the rail splitter is now the new shadow creature. And he actually helps warn Cassie about what's going on in the latter half of the series. Cassie's memory is wiped by those aforementioned psychic twins in the circus leading to a prolonged story where Cassie returns home and has no idea what's going on. It's very busy. It's not my favorite, Mm. but her grandfather's spirit is able to undo the psychic rewrite. And then Cisco, Melchior, and another NBI agent manage to get the manhunt on Cassie called off when they blackmail J Edgar Purvis. We get a couple of more like smaller adventures and then things go off the rails at the end of the series. Cassie is like hanging out with Melchior in Washington and like, learns there's an ambassador from the People's Republic of Rodina who is also a monster. And then in the middle of a speech to Congress, she uses her power to reveal his true nature to like the entire audience. So the series goes from like small town horror stories to this like very big international kind of like supernatural spooky opera in one issue. And it's Mm -hmm. it's dramatic as shit. And then I like it. Yeah, like I. It's one of those things where I was like, I don't hate this. (laughs) I'm like, I think it's actually kind of interesting. Cisco and Cassie are taken back to the PRR. And then during the whole torture investigation, it is revealed that Cassie is her world sigil bearer when her head is shaved and we can see the mark on her scalp. And this is where the last few issues of the series go. World War II is like really ramping up. It's revealed that the PRR has been building up a stockade of supernatural weapons. The example that we get when one goes off by accident is a bomb winds up kind of like summoning or manifesting some sort of like weird Cthulhu like horror monster. But then we also find out the backstory. Cassie ends up meeting the former premier of the PRR while she's on the run in that country. He has also been on the run from his country ever since the adversary's forces took over a couple of years ago. And it reveals that one of the dark spirits was actually like a stand in for Joseph Stalin. He's named Suvarov, Suvorov's administration discovered a breakthrough in munitions instead of relying on uranium. They figured out how to harness life energy, which like, you know, had a massive kind of like detonating power. But then there was an accident at one of the factories and it ripped a hole between the worlds. Suferov crossed over. He basically wasn't killed in the explosion into the realm of perdition. And then he sold his soul to the adversary in exchange for political power. So Suvorov took control of his country, but then he basically ran it into the ground, primarily like famine, poverty, that sort of thing. And then he was finally killed in an uprising. And that's where the series pretty much ends. The final issue has Cassie still in the PRR. The shadow creatures that have been pursuing her throughout this whole thing show up. The new one reveals himself to be the rail splitter Berkeley. And then mm-hmm. Suvarov's identity is revealed, and he is ripped apart by the ghosts of a bunch of dissidents that, you know, he had sent off to like death camps or something like that. And that's literally where the issue ends, and like this is how suddenly it ended because there is a cover preview for the next issue that is like an an homage to dr Strangelove oh, and oh, it's like it looks great like <laughs> I mean, yeah, but this is all because Crossgen went bankrupt, basically, right around this time, Crossgen had been outed as not delivering on freelancer payments and it was revealed then that the company had major financial problems. Apparently the company's graphic novels hadn't really been selling well at major booksellers like Borders and Barnes and Noble, which then led them to return the books for like a huge amount of like credit or refunds. I remember picking up a couple of cross gen graphic novels at Barnes and Noble, and it was it was like on the clearance, you know, like the the bargain area. And it was by I think it was like buy three, get four. Like, you know, mm. and it was like with yeah. that sale price. So I think I bought like yeah. four volumes for less than 20 bucks. And yeah. And then on top of that, it sounds like founder Mark Alesi had been using the stock that he'd gotten from selling his company to back Crossgen, gen. But the stock wound up losing a ton of value during that time. And until then, they'd been basically planning to lose money for like five or six years and just operate on the capital from the stock. And then they were going to make yeah. it up. Yeah. through TV and movie deals which I mean yeah, I don't know I think that's really ambitious but like it's yeah. not the most unreasonable thing like it's better than it's going through it's not a
1: guarantee
0: it's not but like you know I was supposed to say Valiant Comics where they were like you know venture funded and then
1: oh well right right right
0: <laughs> you know basically the venture funding groups were like well you're doing great now so you better sell and give us all our money back so
1: there it is
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> You'd love to see capitalism at work.
1: Fucking hate capitalism. Burn it all down.
0: Right. Yeah. So CrossGen filed for bankruptcy in 2004. And then a ton of their series just end mid story. Like Route 666 was not the only one that this happened to. Right after oh. that, Disney Publishing purchased CrossGen's assets. And then they haven't done much with it. Like a company called Checker Books printed some of CrossGen's stuff as travel sized graphic novels, but only a few of them. And they're good, like they're great, but they just, I don't know. It sounds like Disney was kind of a pain to work with for that. Mm. And then after that, Disney bought Marvel. And so in 2010, Joe Quesada announced that Marvel was going to start republishing cross-gen stuff. And like people were pretty excited about it, but we only got a short-lived Ruse series. And Ruse, Ruse is great. It's basically Sherlock Holmes in kind of like a, a steampunk, slightly fantasy, you know, version of his usual setting. It's really good. Mark Wade was a writer for it, I know, you know, before. But then the whole thing disappeared. So, like, Mm. I guess that Ruse series didn't really sell that well because Marvel had also announced plans for a Route 666 and a Kiss Kiss Bang Bang revival. But neither of those ever came to be.
1: Oh.
0: And now that said, like, there is an omnibus for the sci-fi series sigil that was previously announced. It's due out in November. Apparently, it's massive. Like, I looked it up Mm. and it's apparently still planning to come out in November so. I don't know, maybe Marvel will do some more stuff with all of this that they've just had lying around the vault for over a decade, almost two. Please. Yeah. (laughs) So I have a couple of questions for you. Sure. Yeah. So like the first is like, how did you feel about the overall setup of the story?
1: It was an interesting premise that there is some sort of like covert monster operation for a different plane of existence. And mm-hmm. I feel like we got to find out information as Cassie did in a lot of situations. Yeah. So it was interesting to also be surprised like she was. I also really liked how the comic seemed to say, Oh, you want monsters? Here are all of the monsters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then proceed to give us any type of cryptid, ghouly, Monster, anything that you can think of, just and yeah. shadows, everything.
0: Yeah, I thought the overall setting was pretty interesting and like pretty unique too. Like, I had some minor quibbles. I think they could have done some real interesting stuff if they'd leaned more into like the societal horrors that were going on too, like, you know, persecution of minorities and things like that. But yes. the flip side is that we get a relatively diverse cast. Like, Cisco is Latino, Dr. Waterman is a black man. I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm like, I feel like it could have gone either way, but like I, I kind of enjoyed how it was that kind of Stepford wives aesthetic of like everything is like shiny, happy chrome on the surface. And then just beneath it, everything is bad. Like everything's real bad.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Yeah. And I kind of liked the idea of like a supernatural Cold War. I thought that was kind of a cool idea.
1: Yeah.
0: Sorry that it didn't pan out, you know? But yeah, I mean, now that said, like, what did you think of Cassie as a protagonist? Like, and and what did you think of her power set too?
1: I mean, I think her whole situation is a bummer. (laughs) I mean, being able to see the dead and thinking you're mentally unwell is like a whole other level of torture, especially when she's like actually seeing dead people. (laughs) Yeah. But I think she's a character who, I mean, she had agency, but she wasn't given a ton of choices and she really... Had to make do with what she had. And I I think she did, you know, to the best of her abilities. I think she was portrayed as still being pretty naive and gullible in some situations, especially Mm -hmm. when she just like believes that the serial killer sees the monsters. she does when she's just pointing stuff out. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, well, anybody can. Yes. And
0: right. But then it's complicated because when he actually physically kills the monsters, they turn into the monsters on him. And so he actually is like, right, I've seen them now.
1: Well, yeah, at that point, at that point, but before, before that point, she just believed because he told her beforehand that he could see them, even though he couldn't.
0: Yeah. And she just, like, like, believed him, yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, I don't know, like, I, I'm okay with that because, like, this dude Mm -hmm. came to, like, you know, stood up for her and then, you know, when you have been going through all of this, like, very traumatic stuff over the course of, I don't know, a week. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, someone is like, yeah, I believe you. Like, I can do the same thing. Like, I don't know. I'm totally. like, I <laughs> No, <laughs> you No, know. I mean,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I get your point. I get your point.
0: It's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, she does seem naive. But the whole thing is that she is a college student. Yeah. You know, and then she's also been gaslit by a lot of people into thinking. Right. Well, you know, like, yeah, I guess gaslit because it's like the monsters are like, no, 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 you're crazy. We're not really real. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. Like. And then the other thing, though, is that I agree that like she's kind of moved along by circumstances, but the circumstances are also that weird Final Destination-esque bad luck, you know, right. where it's like, you know, she's just constantly on the run. Yeah, I, don't, yeah, I, I generally yeah. agree with you. I think she I think she feels better than a lot of female protagonists that we've come across in our in our readings.
1: Oh, yeah. Abso- oh, absolutely. Definitely.
0: Yeah. How about the art? What did you think about the art of the series?
1: I mean, it was certainly dynamic. I like yeah. the way that the creatures were portrayed. And I love, I love what they did with the ghosts. The fact that the ghosts had their own text bubble that matched their bluish hue. Yeah. was a really neat touch. And I mean, the only thing that sucked, the women were drawn like the skinny big boob ladies we see in a lot of comics. But like overall, I liked how the story was told through a lot of illustrated action. Yeah. That was really cool. Like they had a really good way of like throwing things and making them feel like things are flying through the air, et cetera. So that was pretty neat. Yeah. I also really like the one-page spread of her coming into her powers more after she saw her grandfather again when mm-hmm. she was older. I thought it was a really cool way to portray a character with a close-up of light just like spilling out of like every orifice in her face. It was yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's also like kind of interesting because. The way that they portray that is it's like it's not like a really consensual awakening of powers. She's like, no, you're going to do this. and I'm just going to wake up your powers, you know, and it's yeah, traumatic, but like it works oh, really absolutely. well for the story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the art was great. They had a couple of other artists do a couple of issues later on in the series, but they always look really good. Towards the end, we get Jim Chung, who he is now like a really big artist who's done a lot of work for Marvel. But he was Mm. doing, I think he was like exclusive to cross-gen at the time. and Okay. He did a series called Scion, which was kind of like a King Arthur series set in that world. Nice. It was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Like, he's immensely talented. And it's really funny because I loved the art up until now. And then I saw Jim Chung's art and I'm like, oh, fuck. We could have gotten Jim Chung doing this and this would have been. I'm like, it would have been so good. And like. I'm not trying to like, you know, denigrate any other artist, but it was just like, oh, but you had yeah, like yeah, yeah. someone who was an A plus artist at the start of his career all of a sudden working on this. It was like, fuck.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the other thing is that for a good portion of this, we don't get extended stories. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like we're getting four or five issue like stories for the first 10 issues or so. Instead, it feels like almost it's like self contained episodes of each. Like, you know, with each comic or like every two comics. Right. As opposed to like, you know, real multi-issue storylines, which, you know, we haven't seen a lot of. How did you feel about that?
1: So I did like the format in this way. I also liked how they did the recaps at the beginning of the issues that filled you in on what had happened in prior issues. Mm -hmm. It was really neat the way that they like framed it as letters to people in the storyline with like snapshots of frames from the prior issues next to the letters content I thought that was really cool it not only caught up the reader but it also immersed you it wasn't like a let's give you all this recap at the beginning that you feel like you have to read it was still felt like it was part of the flow of the storyline so I really like how they integrated that and it was really interesting way to give the reader that information
0: yeah I think it was actually a really good way to bring people on early on you know and then I think it's good to kind of bring people in later on, like where you've got like still shorter storylines, but like, you know, it feels like you could step in and not really feel lost, especially how each issue had a pretty solid recap of what had led up to this point.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I agree. Yeah. I think that's about all I've got. So do you have any final thoughts?
1: You know, one thing I never love how mental institutions are portrayed in the media, like especially around this point in time. Mm -hmm. And this is really no exception. The concept was interesting, and I do think that the character herself would likely be diagnosed with a mental illness if this had been real life. Yeah, of course. But what really caught me off guard was the portrayal of the other patients, like when Mm. they all had got fed, even those who were normally not responsive. But some of the verbiage around the patients and their diseases and the way that I feel like the characters kind of were portrayed in those scenes was, you know... It was yeah. definitely going for a stereotypical kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of a situation.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, you know we've talked about that ad nauseum with our, our episode oh, on Crazy yeah. Man. Yeah. And like the portrayal of mental health and all that from from that era. I don't
1: know. Like and I, I wasn't expecting any better. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I mean, they didn't focus a lot on it, too. And it was very much kind of like, well, this is like the 1950s. Like mental health is something that you lock away. And right. like, don't really deal with it. I did like how there exactly. was how I liked how like the one person of color was like, yeah, no, this place is a place of healing. Like we have a lot of great activities that like I think will really help you. There's yeah. the line of like, think of it like a vacation while we help you sort things out. And I'm like, no, OK, and, mm, I'm like, it's yeah, not sleep. Away not camp, can buddy high. like, but, you know, I don't know. I think this is a really interesting series. I think it's one of the better ones that we have read for this show. Yeah, it's not. It's I not agree. perfect. Like, but I, right, right. But I generally enjoyed it. And because they had one writer kind of guiding the vision for it, I feel like we were, like, with probably about issue 25, we were going to get a big payoff that just never manifested. And that's kind of a bummer because this is one of those things that feels like it almost got there. And then through circumstances that are not any of the creator's faults, it went away. Right. So, a
1: well, bummer.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Marvel you can bring back the original creators and let them finish this up cuz that'd be pretty cool.
1: Marvel, right. are you listening?
0: I think I think both those creators have worked for Marvel too. I know I know the artist was working on Exiles for a while. I think the writer did some X-Men stuff, so hmm.
1: yeah, nice. yeah, nice. But yeah,
0: how do you feel about portaling over to Brain Wrinkles?
1: Let's portal over.
0: All right. We are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is one thing that has been stuck in our heads that is comics or comics adjacent that we have not been able to kind of shake for the last couple of days. So I have been talking for a spell. I'm going to grab a drink. You go ahead.
1: Well, I've been thinking about exploring different genres than you're used to. So I recently watched a couple of movies with a friend and he ended up putting on a couple of films that I would not have chosen myself. Okay. But I like, I'm always open to watching movies. I'm not like a movie hater. So we watched Falling Overnight, which is this really sad story about a young guy with a tumor and he has Mm. surgery the next day and he's not sure if he's going to live through it. And that day he meets this woman that just like changes his world and they form this incredibly strong connection in the span of an evening, Mm -hmm. only to be faced with the next day's reality. So. I'm, not, I'm like not the type of person to put on like romantic or like heartfelt films. I'm usually watching like fantasy <laughs> or horror or something comic related. Like that's just not usually my jam, but it was a really good film and I totally bawled my eyes out, of course, yeah. but it was really good. And it really encouraged me to start watching some things that I've heard are good, but that maybe I wouldn't gravitate towards or put on for myself normally.
0: Yeah, as opposed to me, where I'm like, oh, that looks like a dumb, sappy, romantic movie. Sure, I'll throw that on in the background while I work. <laughs>
1: you guys, this surprises the crap out of me. Because I was like, my friend who was I was watching it with was like, oh, yeah, these are a couple of my go-tos. I was like, this is your go-to. I'm like bawling my eyes out right now. Oh, like, yeah. what's going on? Like, mm-hmm. I just watch it at night sometimes. I'm like, what is happening? Okay.
0: One of my absolute favorite movies. It's a movie called Saving Face. It is from like 2005. It is a lesbian, romantic kind of comedy, kind of drama about Asian American women in New York dealing with like, you know, kind of like the societal pressures around who they're expected to be. It is so good. And the only big name that I can remember from it is Joan Chen. And... I don't think the director has made really much else, but it was like one of those movies where I remember watching it and I would have movie parties with my friends. I'm like, we got to watch this. Like, it's so good. And I would yeah. like make my friends watch it. And they were just like, Oh fuck. That was really good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm a sucker for a good romantic movie, but at the same time, like I have to watch them on my own because as we have discussed in previous episodes, that is not Sarah's taste
1: that's so funny to me yeah because again like i don't put those on either and like once i start watching them they're you know i usually enjoy them but yeah yeah
0: but yeah sarah on the other hand is like i'm gonna watch like the really brutal true crime stuff and i'm like you can do that on your own i'm gonna go in the other room and read a book like
1: hey you gotta learn how to survive society as it is
0: yeah (laughs) yeah exactly
1: prepare yourselves ladies
0: yeah like the venn diagram for sarah and me is it's like con artists who eventually get caught and get their comeuppance. That's the one that we like really. Okay. Uh, like, okay. So the it's uh, a, a
1: pretty broad. Like you can you can go a lot of places with that.
0: The Lularoe documentary that they did on uh, Amazon was great, like so good, and it was done by the same people that did one of the Fire Festival documentaries too. Oh, which nice. also also like the two Fire Festival documentaries. That is a good way to kill a half day, man, because it like. They present uh, uh, uh. again, it's like they, they present two very different stories. Like one of them is more focused on the people who attended and how they were affected by it. And then the other yeah. one is like the behind the scenes stuff that was going on, like how Ja Rule is a giant fucking scumbag. And then there's Oops. this like again like Venn diagram where they're interviewing some of the same people and it's really good.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh man, my favorite thing is that Billy McFarland just recently announced Fire Festival 2. And it's like ah! And, you know, it's like, oh, hey, like, you know, he's walking out of like some penthouse apartment to like hang out on the balcony and he's in this fucking like, you know, lame ass bathrobe. And he's just like, we're uh, we're planning fire festival, too. And uh, we're going to do all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, you are a long way from having like the promo video with a bunch of like a bunch of like the top rated, like, you know, swimsuit models. And like, I think there was a Jenner involved with it. And it's like, man, how the mighty have fallen.
1: My goodness, yeah. Firefest <laughs> two electric boogaloo, I guess. Oh
0: my god. No, like that that was legit one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> yeah. Man.
1: Well, what about you? What's in the old noggin?
0: So it is something that has been kind of like just popping up in my head over the last couple of weeks, based on multiple conversations that I've had. It is when we had David Boer on recently to talk about mm-hmm. The Saturday morning cartoon Dollar Bin Discoveries, like kind of like, you know, before the show started, we were talking about variant covers and how there was this whole discussion about how, well, yeah, people keep saying variant covers are killing the industry, but then New York Comic-Con, everyone's like, we have an exclusive variant for New York Comic-Con. Like, let's just double, triple down on it. (laughs) I mean, like, you know, and that led to a larger discussion about how there was some like God awful, like web 3.0 company where they're like, oh, we're just. All of our comics are going to be like unique variants for the show because they're all using like blockchain tech. I'm like, whatever, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Exactly. I I cannot even with web 3.0 blockchain bullshit. Like Jessica, I have been hit up by so many companies who are trying to hire me for like knowledge management stuff for blockchain companies. And it's immensely satisfying to sit there and tell a recruiter that I'm ethically opposed to their company. But also I'm like, fuck, that is some easy money I'm passing up.
1: Right. <laughs> I know, man, late stage capitalism is a bitch.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm like, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm just going to get out of the corporate rat race and instead go be a nine one one dispatcher. Like we've been talking about that and,
1: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. guys,
0: it's a lot harder than you would expect to like, just even get considered for that. Like it's wild. But anyway, back onto the topic of variant covers. So, yeah, so there was that discussion with David and then I was at the local shop in San Rafael, Blue Moon Comics, and I was talking with Brian, the guy behind the counter. We were just talking about, like, stuff that I had on my pull list. And he was like, oh, yeah, like, I ordered you some, like, variant covers. I can't order you any of, like, the retailer instead of exclusives because, like, we're not big enough. We can't order, like, 25 copies of this. Like, right. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, it's the 90s all over again. Like, right.
1: Right, I I literally was just thinking that I was like, "What are we doing? What's what's happening here?"
0: It feels like a variant, for lack of a better term, of the '90s Mm. speculation bubble. I'm like, it is just this very surreal moment where history feels like it is about to repeat itself, and I don't think it's going to be quite as big of a you know an implosion as the '90s were, because people are still buying comics, and like there are a lot of really good indie publishers who are putting out really good stuff that are you know, selling enough to keep them around. Right. I know Mad Cave. I think our friend. So Sarah Cook, who we had on like a year ago, mm-hmm. she got named one of their like new talents to watch. So cool. I want to say Mad Cave just got the rights to Dracula, I think, or maybe it was Sherlock Holmes. It was one of those like Victorian characters that's pretty big. Nice. Nice basically they're profitable and they're like putting their profits back into like doing good stuff. And I'm like, great. Like, that's fantastic. And they're not relying on a bunch of bullshit, but like, right. I don't know. You know, I don't really have anywhere that I'm going with this other than I'm just kind of like watching all of this stuff go on. And don't get me wrong. Like I've gotten friends who went to San Diego Comic-Con to pick me up some variants for stuff where I was like, this is really cool. I like it a lot. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. Like if this is like the new model where like, you know, Marvel is putting out all of these miniseries that a lot of people don't care about. And then they're like, oh, well, and then we have this variant cover that you have to order 50 copies for. <laughs> it's like, no. I don't know. I'm like, are, are the big publishers like hastening another uh, bubble pop?
1: Right. Yeah. So.
0: Well,
1: yeah. What I don't I know that would be.
0: It would be a bummer, but it wouldn't really be that surprising. Like.
1: No. Cyclical. Our history.
0: Yeah, I was going to say Warner Brothers owns DC and Marvel is owned by Disney. And those are both incredibly mm-hmm. greedy corporations. So,
1: yep. Yep, yep. you
0: know, that <laughs> is what it is. Oh. But yeah, well, thank you everyone for joining us. As per usual, we will be back next week with another Dollar Bin Discovery. After that, I think we're going to be discussing Dakota North. Is that right?
1: I think that was the plan. Yeah.
0: And I believe we're going to have a special guest on for that one.
1: I think we are.
0: And then maybe I think after that, for a deep dive after Dakota North, we're going to have Dan Chichester back on to talk about a different series that he worked on, as well as a new Marvel miniseries that he is working on right now. So. Man,
1: friend of the pod. Look at all these friends we make. We got to
0: get that. him like a letterman jacket or something, because this is like his fourth, third time, fourth time on the show.
1: I know. Right. At what point do we just like come over to your house just in the middle of the night and we just like tattoo something on your body? And it's just like you're in the club now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> God, we'll have to see if we can get Sarah to come up with like a custom piles tattoo.
1: Yes, perfect, perfect. Which
0: I mean, I will totally club, get to wake yeah. up,
1: right? Yeah, you'll you'll wake up with a piles goblin tattoo and be like, "Oh, I've made it."
0: <laughs> It'll be like a less terrible version of the uh the behind the scenes of Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: There will be no Jared Leto bullshit over here.
1: No, no, I'm not going to send you rats. It's fine.
0: <laughs> All right, well, stay safe, everyone, and we will see you in the stacks.
1: Thanks for listening to 10 Cent takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website.
0: This episode was hosted by Jessica Fraser and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald. And was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at LookMomDraws.com.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to 10 centtakescom or shoot an email to 10 centtakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or now. The official podcast account is 10cent all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V A N S A U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P E N N G R O V E.
0: Send us stuff. if you'd like to support us be sure to download rate and review wherever you listen
1: stay safe out there
0: and support your local comic shop